Well, once upon a time, there was a, an island, an island that was shrouded continually and perpetually in a dense fog. The inhabitants of the island um, had uh, never seen what was beyond the fog, but occasionally as they would look out toward what was the ocean, you know, they, they could see the beginning of it right there at the shore, but as they looked out into this fog, every once in a while they would see shadows passing along slowly, and they'd think, what's that? And, uh, and what happened was then they started worshiping um, these shadows and, uh, and putting a great deal of stock into the shadows. Eventually, they built piers out into the ocean so that they could go out further and walk out, and then they would take food offerings, and they would throw it off. And you, you figured out this is made up, right? Okay, it's a parable. And they say, oh, I thought he was telling a true story. No, 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 no. And they, they would walk out, and they would throw their food offerings into the water. And, uh, and then one day, lo and behold, out of nowhere, a, a ship, a sailing ship, pulled up to the pier and stopped, and men got off of it, and the, and the islanders were perplexed, like, what is this? What is this thing? And they were told what it was, a ship, and, and, and all of these. And, 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 and suddenly they realized, wait, that's what those shadows were. All these shadows, all these years that we've been worshiping, that's, this, this is the actual reality behind those shadows. And so some of the people embraced that new truth, and they even traveled then with ships and saw the world, but, but some of them were not so keen on the ship. They're like, oh, it's so stark and it's so plain. I remember the shadows and how beautiful the shadows were, and, and there was such mystery to the shadows. Let's go back to the shadows. And then they, they, they created a, another whole movement of, of worship where would they go and they would continue to offer sac sacrifices to the, to the shadows. Well, we're in Colossians 2. A little break from the, from the parable there. And, uh, and the parable, you'll understand the parable if you haven't already as, as we go along here. Paul has been very clear throughout. We've been telling you from the beginning. How many weeks ago now would that be? I don't know. But when we started Colossians, from the very beginning, we said that there were these false teachers at Colossae. And we've been kind of leading up to that and giving you bits and pieces of it. And, and Paul first, he went on and on. How many feel like Paul just went on and on and on about Jesus? Like, it's just like he was just stuck. Like, what, what, is there nothing more to it? You know, because Christ in, in whom is all the fullness of deity and, 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 and the very image of the invisible God. And it just, he just piles all this about Jesus. And now we get, now we get to the problem at hand there at Colossae. So we're going to look at this. We have people at Colossae who, like in the parable that I just told you, were trying to say, look, let's, there's these shadows that we should go back to. These shadows that are significant and important. We need to go back to worshiping the shadows. And this is the big idea today. Don't let anyone turn you away from the reality of Christ back to shadows. That's the wrong direction. Uh, maybe you say that can't happen. I don't see how that could possibly happen. Excuse me for slurping there. <clears throat> it does. It does. It's happened more than you would think. And we're going to talk about that today. But uh, we're going to look at two warnings. These are not Jay's warnings. I didn't set out to preach. If anybody goes, wow, you know, I think Jay was preaching it. No, I, I'm just preaching what's here. 
This is just what's here. And, it's just, and the applications I'm making today are just the things that are present in our culture, in our Christian culture today. So if I offend anyone, if this gets too close to anyone, if it steps on any toes, you just you take the Word of God, all right? Understand I may not perfectly lay it out, but this is what the Word of God says. There are two warnings in our text, two warnings, and there's one great truth to take hold of. Got it? Okay, first warning, don't let them judge you. These false teachers, these ones that are taking you back to the shadows, don't let them judge you. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, let's just start with the word therefore. And I talked about it at the end of last week's sermon that we were going to, that the next word out of the box was going to be therefore. Therefore is a connecting word, right? When you see therefore, the question is, what is it? Therefore, you know that, right? So what it, why is it there? Well, because of everything that came before, Paul says, therefore. So for this reason, as a result of knowing that it's all about Christ, therefore, don't let anyone judge you. Don't let, don't let them take you away. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to recognize that the things in verse 16 are chiefly Jewish in nature. Well, I would argue entirely, verse 16, utterly, fully Jewish. Old Testament Jewish practice. Let, let, let's look at them You're just really quickly. You see food and drink. You say, well, all people have food and drink, and, and there are other religions and, and cults and so forth that tell you you can eat this, but you can't eat that. So that wouldn't have to be Jewish. And then you, then you, have, uh, you, know, you have festivals. Well, that's not uniquely Jewish. And new moons. Everybody gets a new moon once a month, right? Whether you want it or not, you get a new moon. So that, every, that could be anything, couldn't it? Then you get to Sabbaths, and you're like, oh, I don't know about that. Sabbath, that's pretty unusual. That's pretty Jewish at this point. Here's the kicker. This is why I'm telling you this is utterly and totally Jewish at this point in verse 16. The only place where you find this collection, this list of these words together, is in Jewish writing and in the Old Testament. And this is the New Testament. And this is Paul who's thoroughly grounded in the Old Testament, so he knows exactly what he's speaking about. These are all elements of the ceremonial law, as we sometimes call it. You know, it relate, when you think about temple worship and the Sinai covenant, the Torah, everything surrounding that, all of the various ritual laws and so forth, all of them are bound up here in verse 16. And these are good in their place. When you read the Old Testament, you're going to come into contact with all of these 613 laws of the Jewish people that, that surround the, the temple worship, and they're all right and good in their place, in their, in their place in salvation history. But none of these are binding on the New Testament Christian. None of these are binding on the New Testament Christian. If you look at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, Peter is talking there against circumcising the Gentiles. But it's a bigger question than that. It goes to the whole issue of the ceremonial law. If you're pushing the ceremonial law, then you're just going to have to accept that circumcision is part of that. And if you reject circumcision as part of that, then you're rejecting the rest of the ceremonial law. Do you understand how they go together? 
And the early church looked at this. They, do the Gentiles have to become Jews to become Christians? Do they have to submit to that? And the answer was no. Peter says, even our fathers and, and we ourselves weren't able to bear the burden of, of the law, of those 613. And Paul is stating very clearly that no new covenant believer in Jesus Christ at Colossae was bound in any way, shape, or form to be conformed to those ceremonial restrictions. And what's also clear in the context is that the false teachers that we've been leading up to, that we've been talking about, what's clear is they were judging the Christians who did not practice what they practiced. They were judging them in some way as being second class. They probably weren't saying, well, you're, you're not part of this, but they were no doubt, based on the judgment thing, they were no doubt saying, you're not quite there. You're not quite all you could be. You haven't gotten there. And you will see this in some modern teachings that are trying to merge. And this is happening in the church today, and that's why I feel like we have to talk about it. There, there is a movement within, within the church in some quarters where they're trying to merge Judaism and the purity laws and all those things with Christian teaching within the church practicing, as it were, forcing the Torah observance upon Christians, and if not forcing, at least greatly, deeply encouraging that you can go further, you can do, go deeper, or you can go higher if you go toward those things. I was listening to uh, some, some different uh, people that, that promulgate that on YouTube, and, and uh, the one that was probably the least offensive was still basically saying, yeah, yeah, I'm not saying all Christians have to do this, of course not, but you know... Like, you know, when you get there, you know, when you get uh, um, educated to it, it's so rich. It's so, you know, and so it's like, yeah, you're you're kind of like a second. You're you're, you're kind of still ignorant if you don't practice these. And that's sort of the best of it. Some people will throw you out altogether with the and say you're not even a genuine follower of God because you're not keeping the the Torah. Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in these matters. Don't let it happen. You say, well, how do I keep people from judging me? Well, that's, of course, it's a figure of speech. You can't keep someone from judging you if they are intent upon judging you. What he's saying here is don't you mentally, spiritually submit to that judgment. Even if it's just to think about yourself as if, well, I'm not quite... You know, and I mean, I think it's, it's not uncommon for evangelical Christians to feel like they're not maybe quite up to standard. Like, oh, if I'd only been born Jewish, you know, and I had that going for me as well, then I would fully understand and grasp and be all that I can be. Paul says, don't let you, don't let those people judge you. Don't buy into that. There is a place for judgment in the church. I do want to say that really quickly. Some people say, well, you know that the Bible teaches no judgment whatsoever. That's not true. That's not true. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to understand that. There is a place if people are set and caught in unrepentant moral failure, the church is literally told to judge. And, and the judgment is to put them out of the church. That is a thing. But Paul is saying, you're not in sin because you're not following the Torah. There's no sin whatsoever. You're not second-class citizens, so don't let those people just come in and tell you how you should think or how you should be. That's not on you. 
that is not on you. Now, 20 years ago, if I was preaching this passage, and that's how quickly things have changed, it seems like, on the landscape of the church. 20 years ago, if I were preaching this passage, I would have talked about cults and how they have some of these kinds of rules to them, or I would have said legalism. I would have talked about Christians falling under legalism in churches where, oh, you have to keep your hair this length or your skirt that length or whatever. I I would have made those applications because that would have been the only logical, useful application at that time. But today in the church, I have to say this the way I'm saying it. I have to preach this the way I am preaching it. There are people, I'm shocked by the number of Christians today that are going so deep into, uh, into that whole idea of keeping the 613 purity you know, laws of the Old Testament that they are more Jewish at the end of the day than most Jews in America are. They're wearing more of the garb and doing more of the ritual and attending more of the festivals and all of these things than even reasonably good Jewish people in our, you know, except for the Hasidic Jews. They've pretty well gone beyond that. I'm shocked by that. And if it were only those who do it out of kind of a sense of this is engaging and interesting, you know, if it were like people doing reenactments of Civil War battles or something like that, that would be all well and good, wouldn't it? If it were just that kind of a thing, well, we're going to do the Passover. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, let's go do the Passover. We'll find out what the Passover is about. That's not a problem. But the problem is within the church, this is going to seed. This is going to seed. People are leaving the faith. In many cases, it ends up there. And that's what we need to be careful about. That's what we need to guard our hearts on this. So first of all, don't fall into that trap where you let these people judge you. For ease of preaching, I am jumping over to the second warning, and then I'll come back to the big truth. So I'm jumping over verse 17. I'll come back. We'll look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So don't let them disqualify you. We still see aspects of Judaism here. Within verse 16, that, that appears to be 100% Jewish in background. 100% Old Testament purity laws. When you get to verse 18, there's, it's, it's kind of a mix. The Jewish people did, they, they were known to practice in certain circles, a kind of very severe asceticism, deep, deep, severe fasting, And the purpose, it was tied to the idea of having visions and actually seeing angels. So this we know was a practice. When it talks about the worship of angels, I'm not sure that it's saying that they actually wanted to worship angels. That that doesn't ring true to me. Now, some people think that's exactly what it's saying. The phrase of angels, worship of angels, it can mean two different things. Well, minimally, it can mean two different things. It could mean that, that they wanted to worship angels. What I think is more likely is I think they wanted to have this elevated experience, have visions, and in seeing these visions, they would see angels engaged in worship. Yeah. And let me give you another piece. Can you put on your thinking caps with me for a moment? Because this is, this is going to be just a little bit of grammar, but it's really key and important. Who's with me? Grammar, yes, okay. All right, so here's, here's the interesting thing here. 
There's, there's a difficulty in translating this in verse 18 because there's a word that doesn't seem to make sense just standing bare alone the way it does in the text. It kind of demands some, some further object or indirect object. It's, it's the word enter in. Enter in. And it gets translated, the ESV says entering into detail about visions and so forth. Um, the word detail isn't in the text. But it just seems very, very abrupt that translators have struggled with this enter in thing. Enter in. I'm going to, I'm going to let you in on something that's really, really cool and really interesting. The, the phrase enter in, as it stands in the Greek, actually can stand alone in a very specific context. In Laodicea, Laodicea, remember Laodicea is mentioned like five times in the book of Colossians because it was a neighboring city and kind of a neighboring sister congregation to the Colossians. In Laodicea, they have unearthed inscriptions from ancient mystery religions in the area. And they use this very word, and they use it in a standalone manner, the way it is in our text. And in the mystery religions of that day, what it was talking about when it used that word was going past the initiate point where you've been brought into the cult, and now within that you've been brought into the inner sanctum of that cult. So you're fully initiated you have been brought in. And so when you take all of these pieces together, when you take the very, very Jewish practices and you combine them with this ancient mystery religions of, of being you know, brought into these, these, these visions or these inner sanctums, you, you get a picture of something uh, where, where people were being pushed to practice very, very ceremonial law kinds of things, and then this asceticism with the goal that they would get them to this place where they would enter into, enter into a temple, all right, but not a, not a pagan temple. They would enter into a heavenly temple. And there, what would they see? They would see angels, yes, and they would see the angels worshiping God. Paul says about the false teachers, and it's kind of ironic, he says, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Let me tell you what Paul is saying there. He's saying these people don't know what they're talking about, but they're arrogant and they're self-important and they have these inflated ideas about how they've got all this stuff figured out and they want to push that at you, but you know what? What they think they're seeing, they're not really seeing they're not seeing it with the spirit they're seeing it with their fleshly mind this is the power of suggestion this is hallucination at best it's it's what they're doing isn't even real what they're trying to get you to do isn't actually real or of any value now could paul give people visions of heaven could did i say paul could god give people visions of, of heaven where there's angels How about the book of Revelation? Isn't that what that is? John is taken up and he sees things that other people haven't seen in these these visions. What about Paul when he talks about the third heaven? And he talks about, I know a certain man who was taken up into the third heaven and, and, and so on and so forth. Whether in the body, whether not in the body, Paul doesn't reasonably know. But, yeah, um, it is possible. But the notion of what these people were promulgating that by an ascended kind of practice of the purity laws under the Old Testament and then adding in this asceticism, that you could guarantee that Christians could reach a higher plane of this sort. That's just gobbledygook. 
That, that should not be. Paul says, uh, don't let them disqualify you. Don't let them disqualify you. The word disqualify here is a word that comes out of the sporting arena. It kind of referred to when an umpire or a referee would, would uh, disqualify you from an event, like for whatever reason you'd been unsportsmanlike or whatever it might be, and they would disqualify you. Um, how many have heard of the 1972 uh, Olympic basketball championship game? The 1972, anyone? It's long. Anybody remember hear, hearing about it? Yes? All right. It was controversial. When you look it up next to the silver medalists, which were the Americans, there is an asterisk because that was the first time the Americans had been beaten and they were beaten by the Soviet Union. And if you go back and you watch, it really looks like a severe case of cheating them out of what was rightfully theirs. They reset the clock like three times or something insane like that to give the Soviet Union more chances at winning the game, which they finally managed to do. Yeah, so the American team literally did not take the podium. They did not go up and receive their silver medals. They've, the, the team has since then said, why don't you give the medals to like the Hall of Fame Museum, of the, wherever that is. For the, and uh, the Olympic Committee's like, no, you have, to accept the, you have to accept that you were second place and take the medals, then you can give them. And they're like, no, we're not going to do that. They wouldn't let themselves be disqualified, if you will, with having been cheated. And, and that word disqualify also means don't let yourself be cheated out of. Don't let yourself be disqualified. This is very much like the earlier point where he says don't let anyone judge you. Don't allow yourself to be willingly cheated. Don't, don't roll over. Don't give up and trade what you have in Christ. For any of these other things which are but a shadow. Paul is speaking to the church at Colossae. And he's saying to the church as a whole, I think, be careful. He's not just saying to individual Christians, don't let yourself be judged. Don't let yourself be disqualified. But I believe that he's speaking to the church and probably to the leadership of the church saying, don't let that kind of teaching hold sway. Don't let your church people be judged in that way. You make sure you head that off. Don't be disqualified. The biggest fear, the biggest fear when you think about, maybe you thought of this right away when I said don't, don't let them disqualify you. What is the prize that every Christian looks toward? What is the prize that, that at the end of it all we want to receive? What's the trophy, the, the crown of, it, it's Christ it's eternal life, it's heaven, it's, it's all of that which has been laid up for us. So I think when Paul is saying, don't let yourself be disqualified here by th these false teachers, he's saying, don't go there and let yourself be pulled away from Christ and thereby pulled away from eternal life. Yeah, don't let that happen. Here's the big truth that we need to take hold of. Now we're skipping back to verse 17. Glory in Christ the substance. Glory in Christ, the substance. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, let me say something really quickly there about the grammar. When it says, these are a shadow of the things to come, what he's saying there is, when they were given, at that point, they were a shadow of those things which were to come after them. 
So this one, it's not saying these are a shadow of things yet to come, although there may be aspects that are still unfulfilled that are coming. But chiefly what it was saying was when they were given. It might be better translated, these are a shadow of what was to come. Of what was to come. The old covenant was a shadow. And there's a reality to shadows, right? Do shadows exist? Yeah, they exist. They, they do. I mean, they're, they're, they're a, a property of light, and I'm sure the science behind shadows is probably way deeper and more interesting than I even know. But you know about, we, we all intrinsically, you know, if, if we have sight, I mean, a blind person wouldn't know this, but sighted people have, have had a long experience with shadows. When you were a kid, did you ever try to catch your shadow? Did you ever try to quickly turn and sneak up on it before it turned, things like that? Yeah? Maybe you're just brilliant. I did that when I was a kid. I was trying, trying to figure that out. But, you know, think about this for a moment. Shadows, though they have a, a correspondence to us, they are our outline. My shadow is my shadow. Your shadow is your shadow. Never the twain shall meet. Uh, well, I guess they could cross. But anyway, um, at the end of the day, my shadow is not me. At the end of the day, the shadow has no independent existence apart from me. I am not identical to my shadow. If you turn the light off and my shadow goes away, there's not suddenly a little less of me. You're saying, Jay, this is really obvious. Is it? It should be. It should be really obvious. Those aspects of the law that related to ceremonies and festivals and various holy days, rites of circumcision, this, the whole sacrificial system that was part of temple worship, all of those things, according to Paul, were but a shadow of the reality that was to come, which is Christ. Picture a landscape. In the middle of the landscape, you have Christ and his cross. To the west, the sun's going down. To the east is the entire Old Testament, Old Covenant. The Sinai Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, all the way back to Adam. All of that reaching back, being shown upon by way of Christ in the middle. All of that in the Old Testament is a shadow of Christ. All of it. Every last bit of it. That is the essence. The Old Covenant came was, and, and was fulfilled in Christ. Unless you think I'm too, making too... I could imagine someone going, eh, I don't know. That's one passage, Jay. I don't think Paul uses the term shadow to describe the law very often or anything like that. Well, okay, I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. I don't believe that. Most scholars don't believe that. But interestingly enough, someone, whoever wrote Hebrews, had the exact same idea as Paul. Look what it says in... This is Hebrews chapter 8. The writer is talking about the sanctuary. And also all of the laws related to sanctuary, which is the bulk of the Old Testament ceremonial law, relates to the sanctuary in some form. But it says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed, the tent means the tabernacle, yeah? He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The pattern on the mountain would have been the reality, Almost the entire ceremonial law is falling here in Hebrews 8 under that term shadow. It's a shadow. It's not the substance. Look at Hebrews 10.1. Same word again. By the way, in the Greek, same word. You can do, you can do a search on it. Same, same word. 
For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Do you see where then the shadows fit? They're great. They point forward to Christ. Could they make us perfect? Could they forgive us of our sins? Could they take care of the sin debt? No, that was nailed to the cross. That is why Christ, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ in him is all the fullness of God pleased to dwell. In him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Our trespasses are forgiven, not in those sacrifices, not in those laws, but in Christ. They are nailed to his cross. That is the substance. Interestingly, the word translated substance here is actually the word body. So do you see how that connects with the idea of his shadow? The body is the reality. You, your body, when that casts a shadow, the shadow corresponds to you, but you, your body, you are the reality. You're the the thing that's stopping the light to, to create the shadow. Jesus is that to the law. Jesus is the body. I want I want you to hear for those that want to go down this road which I understand and I understand that you can be you know you can kind of have a toe dipped in the water and find these things very very scintillating and very interesting the idea of practicing the law and so forth. I get that. I get that. I think educating oneself makes sense. But you will never, if, if you're a Gentile, you are never going to be a Jew. You understand this. Right? That's, that's, you're not. It's not going to happen. You never will be. That's not how this thing works. And you're never going to be more of a Hebrew than Paul. Listen to what Paul says about this whole matter. Because he sums up works righteousness, the idea of keeping the law, of keeping all 613 that, that are supposed to be kept. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the circumcision group here. For we, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Now he's getting into those people that are getting deep in, starting to brag about this stuff. He says, hey, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. (laughs) Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, which is what we're talking about, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's he's like, according to that outward ceremonial law, I had ticked all the boxes. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. What did you lose, Paul? He lost that standing of keeping all those laws as a good Pharisee. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Are you going to outperform Paul 
in keeping these laws, these 613, that you, do you want to go back to doing that? Is that necessary? Is that what Paul's saying? Fellow believer, in Jesus Christ, don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let anyone rob you of your prize. You're like, Jay, you're just, I don't even know what you're so worked up about. None of this is really even an issue. A couple of weeks ago, I was at the uh, funeral for my stepmother, and uh, it was performed by a guy named Aaron Klein. You're like, Jewish, right? That's what I thought. So I, t- I asked him afterward. We were sitting around. He, he did such a great job with the funeral. It was so rich biblically. And uh, I'm sitting with him. I'm so, Aaron Klein, huh? that must be Jewish, right? He goes, not a bit. Nope. Sorry. Can't claim it. But that got him kind of onto topic. And he was telling me in his first pastor, there was a church in his town that started getting into going down this route of like getting into all of the keeping of the keeping of the ceremonial law, the Torah, all of these things. And he said at first, you know, it was just dabbling and then pretty soon it was pretty serious. Pretty soon that was kind of expected of you if you went to that church. And then they left their denomination and then they left Christ. They they converted to Judaism. They left Christ completely behind. They left the gospel ship and they threw their prize into the midst of that ocean of shadows. And that's what we have to be careful about. As I said, 20 years ago, if I'd preached this text, I would not have even mentioned this. It wouldn't have even come to my mind. But so much has happened in the last 20 years where people start, and I get it, I get it. Michael Brown uh, you know, he's Jewish. He's a Jewish believer. He talks about this. He says, you know, that, that at first it fascinates, and then, gosh, I've forgotten the, the second one, but basically then it complicates and eventually it suffocates people's faith in Christ. We have to be careful, boys and girls. We have to be careful. I know some, some only see it as instructive, as informing their Christian faith. Okay, but be careful. Be careful. Pretty soon, if you're not careful, you are literally leaving Christ behind altogether. Serious Christian scholars have always been interested in the Old Testament. That's one of the things you'll run into. People, when they discover this kind of thing, often they feel as if they've uncovered the secret that nobody's known anything about all this time. The truth of the matter is, Christians for as long as the church has existed, have, well, and especially, you know, you come to the Reformation time period, and there was this acceleration in going back to the original languages. I couldn't, I couldn't become a pastor without learning Hebrew. Now, my Hebrew is horrible, I'll just admit that, but, but the point is, the study of Hebrew, the study of the Old Testament is an essential part for every Christian. Every Christian. If you come to this, this is not new information, but, but it is It is ultimately a shadow. It is a shadow. And the substance is Christ. And that's who we preach. If you are here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this this message has been aimed pretty squarely at the church. I get that. But if, if you are lost, if you are without Christ, that's who we preach. Jesus Christ, him crucified. In him is the fullness of God. In him, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. And in Christ, we, having come into him, have all of the privilege and the provision that God has given in Christ. If you come to Christ, if you turn from your sin, if you put your trust in him, you will be given eternal life. That's the prize. 
Take hold of that. Take hold of eternal life today, Christian. Embrace it. And don't let anyone disqualify you from that. Don't let anyone push you back to the shadows. Let's pray. Father God, I I really would never have thought 20 years ago that I'd be preaching a sermon like the one I am today, but Lord, so many, so many have become so fascinated in these shadows um, that in, in some cases, Lord, they have literally confused Christians and Christians have been confused and left feeling judged or disqualified. In some cases, Lord, like the one we were talking about, People have altogether left the faith. They have disqualified themselves from the prize of knowing Christ. Lord, help your people to stay focused on the centrality of Jesus Christ, that they might know him and love him and, uh, and not be taken away, not, not be judged or disqualified or pulled away or deceived. And uh, Lord, we, we, we pray that, um, that in the end, you would be glorified in us and in your people. We pray, Lord, that if there's a person here today that that has wandered in and doesn't know you, that such a person hearing the gospel of Christ would be drawn to him, not the shadows, but drawn to Christ and believing in him, be wonderfully saved. We ask it in his name. Amen.